You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Chapter 1. We'll read the first 17 verses. of this inspired biography. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zara by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom, and Jerom, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliud, and Iliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This, beloved, is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, this morning, as we have read, we begin our study of Matthew's inspired biography of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a brand new believer, a brand new Christian, or you've been walking with Jesus for decades, or perhaps you are just a, an, an observer of the Christian faith, I can assure you that devoting time and energy to understand and grasp the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is the most significant use of our limited time on earth. What you will read and discover in the pages of Matthew's gospel is a story that has done to shape more of human history than any other story, and it's not even close. What you will read in Matthew's gospel are claims that are so outrageous that if they are false, ought to be rejected as ludicrous. But if true, they demand 
full allegiance. What you will discover in Matthew's gospel is that Matthew leaves no gray area concerning the person of Christ. As C.S. Lewis famously writes, he, Jesus, is either the Lord of the universe and worthy of our full devotion, or he is a lunatic and should be avoided at all costs. Matthew leaves no room for simple admiration of Jesus Christ. There will only be full allegiance to him or nothing at all. Matthew leaves no room for Christ as an additive to your already full life. Matthew does not let us use Jesus as a means to another end, but instead Matthew presents Jesus as the telos, the end, the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, and before whom all the earth will bow. Matthew presents Jesus as the king of glory, the one who is high and lifted up. No mere admiration will do, only full devotion. Well, what about the author? What about Matthew himself, the author of this inspired history? Matthew, who also goes by Levi, by the way, is the author of this biography. We know this not because Matthew lets us know that Matthew is the author of this biography. No, like all the other of the four gospels, this gospel is written anonymously. However, we are confident that Matthew is the author of this work because some of the earliest church historians and church fathers like Papias in AD 135 or, or Irenaeus, and a Bishop of Lyons in AD 175 and others were unwavering in their assertion that Matthew wrote this account. Both in ancient and contemporary scholarship, there is virtually no debate that Matthew wrote the account before us. Matthew was a tax collector. We know this not because the other gospels tell us that Matthew was a tax collector, but Matthew himself tells us that he was a tax collector. Many assume that Matthew wanted to add that essential information in his gospel so as to testify to the transforming power of the gospel in one's life. Matthew was a tax collector in the first century Palestine and an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew does use the gospel of Mark for the sake of structure and continuity as he writes his gospel account, but Matthew writes from an eyewitness perspective. In fact, Matthew, the former tax collector, will be called by Jesus to be one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And then Matthew will be one of those few apostles that were sent out by Jesus himself after the death and resurrection of Christ. And so what we have before us, beloved, is a very early eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ written only about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a very old and very early testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned, there are four gospels in the New Testament. If you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, there are four gospels in the New Testament. That is four different accounts of the life of Jesus. And each of these four gospels, though they tell the same essential story, each of them provide a unique contribution 
to the church. Matthew's contribution, as we will see in the weeks and months to come, is nothing short of remarkable. Let me list just a couple of those contributions that are unique to Matthew. First, of all the Gospels, Matthew writes the most complete account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That is why, perhaps, Matthew is the most quoted, most written about gospel of the four gospels in the New Testament. It is the most complete account that we have of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension and commissioning of the church by Christ himself. Furthermore, Matthew writes with absolutely, absolute literary brilliance. This is what struck me as surprising as I prepared for this series. Matthew, the way he structures his gospel is unique to the four gospels and it is compelling all on its own. Matthew breaks up his gospel in three main parts. We have the prologue or the nativity, the beginning, the birth of Christ. That's the first section. And that's followed by five narratives and five teachings that Matthew hopes for his Hebrew listener, for his Jewish listener, would, would draw parallels from the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the five teachings of Moses. And he would parallel that to the five teachings of Jesus so as to say to his Hebrew audience that a better Moses has come in Jesus Christ. So the prologue and the birth narrative is followed by five major teachings. And then the majority of his book is left for this final Stage, and that is the passion of Christ, the suffering of Jesus. In fact, Matthew is not alone. Most or all of the Gospels devote most of their time to the passion of Jesus Christ, the suffering and the death of Jesus. Why is that so? Why does Matthew and the other Gospel writers devote most of their narrative to the passion, to the suffering of Jesus? Well, the answer is because that's why he came. That is the main reason for why Jesus came. Yes, he gave us insights for living. Yes, he gave us an example for godly kingdom living. But he came to die. He came to suffer. And he came to rise. And so we have the birth narrative, the five teachings, and then the passion conclusion at the end. Matthew's structure is absolutely compelling. Finally, Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. It's the very first book. In fact, if you're looking up here, you can see there's this little page that separates Malachi and Matthew. This little page represents 400 years. 400 years from the Old Testament prophets, the major and minor prophets, to Jesus and Matthew. 400 years. And Matthew is the first of the Gospels in the New Testament, which is intentional because Matthew does more than any other Gospel writer to connect the Old Testament promises of Messiah to the New Testament fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the main contribution of Matthew. He does more than any other New Testament author to connect the promises of the Old Testament Messiah to the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. In fact, if there was one word to summarize the Gospel of Matthew, I would choose the word fulfillment. You'll see over and over again as we move through the narrative, Matthew says, and this was done in order to fulfill what was said by the prophets. 
And this was done in order to fulfill what was promised in the old covenant. So Matthew is writing with a Hebrew audience in mind, with a Jewish audience in mind. But as we'll soon find out, Matthew is well aware that this good news will eventually become a global phenomenon to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And it's to this main contribution in Matthew's gospel, the connection of the Old Testament with the New. It's this main contribution that we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning and so to begin his groundbreaking biography, Matthew begins with a genealogy, a list of hard-to-pronounce names. This feels all too familiar as we went through the book of Genesis together not too long ago, but I hope that some of those names have new significance to you this morning, new weight, new insight as we hear of the genealogy of Jesus Christ to our Western minds, this may be the least compelling way to begin a story. I know it's the least compelling way to begin my story. I, ran, I may have told you this. I ran into a guy who had the last name Bud one time. And I had not known anything about my genealogy, my heritage. And Ancestry.com was, was super popular at the time. And he goes, oh, you haven't heard our story, the last name Bud? And I said, no, tell, please, tell me our story. And he says, oh, yeah, so it's Dutch originally, and we're Dutch farmers. And I was like, oh, okay, farming, farming's cool. That's hard work, hard workers. That's where we're from. Yeah, Dutch farmers, and we migrated from Europe and on our way to America. That was the goal, was to get to America. And I'm like, oh, great, tell me more. He's like, well, we got to Canada, and we thought that was good enough. And we settled in Canada as Canadian farmers. And I'm, I'm bracing, I'm waiting for like, where's the royalty? Like, where's the fight? Where's the warriors? Where's the spears? No, we were Canadian farmers. That's our story. So to our Western minds, a genealogy is perhaps the least compelling way to begin a story. But for Matthew's audience, for his Jewish audience, they would have been spellbound by this list of names. For Matthew's original audience, these names represent the law and the prophets. They represent the history of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. Names like David and Abraham, Jacob and Judah. After 400 years of silence, these names would have captivated his audience. Names like Solomon and Uriah and Hezekiah and Amos. These names would have captured the complete attention of Matthew's Jewish audience. And with this genealogy, as Jesus' own heritage, Matthew is saying in no uncertain terms that this Jesus is thoroughly Jewish. He is a Hebrew through and through. Matthew is saying to his original audience, Jesus is one of you. But as we'll soon find out, Matthew is saying, he is also so much more. And so we'll spend the rest of our time now just looking at verse one. We'll reference the list from time to time, but I want to spend the rest of our time just looking at verse one of Matthew chapter one. Verse one, let's read it together slowly. 
the book of the genealogy, literally the Genesis, the origins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice Matthew does not introduce himself. He doesn't greet his audience. But instead, Matthew gets right to the point of why he's writing. Matthew is writing with one main subject in mind. One main purpose, one main aim, and that is to introduce the world to Jesus the Christ. First, Matthew calls Jesus the Christ. Notice the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, but instead Christ is his title. He is Jesus the Christ. And Christ, or Christos, is essentially a Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah or Mashiach. And that translates anointed one or one that is anointed. The Messiah, the Christ, is one who is anointed by God. And this idea of anointed or being anointed is fairly common in the Old Testament. Kings would be anointed before they would ascend a throne. Priests in the temple would be anointed before they would go into the temple and perform ceremonial duties. Even the objects in the temple would be anointed before they would be used for temple sacrifice. So this idea of anointedness or messiah is fairly common in the Old Testament. So in some sense, Matthew is communicating to his Hebrew audience that this Jesus is someone who has been anointed by God. He's been set apart for a holy task to serve Israel's God and, Israel and God's people. But of course, of course, Matthew is not done. Matthew is not content with Jesus simply being anointed by God. After giving Jesus the title of Christ, Matthew goes on to say that this one who is anointed is also the son of David. He is the Christ and he is the son of David. And this is an explosive statement. Explosive. Because listen, beyond the idea of someone or something that is generally anointed to ascend a throne or perform some task in the temple, there was also, listen, there was also an expectation in the Hebrew scriptures of an anointed one a deliverer who would come to Israel's defense finally and fully and lead Israel into shalom, into final peace with God. So beyond this general idea of general anointed, there was also this promise, this whisper of hope that there would be an anointed one who would deliver God's people and lead them into shalom. And the scriptures are abundantly clear that this Messiah, this anointed one, the anointed one would come through the kingly line of David and would establish his kingdom forever. In fact, this agreement or this covenant, theologians have called this the Davidic covenant, this agreement between God and David would come in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. 
This is what God says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, David was, David was the king of kings in Israel's history. He was the only king directly appointed by God and became the standard bearer for an ideal ruler in Israel. King David was the apex of rulers. But David died, and so did his son Solomon. And the kings that followed him, each one would become more wicked than the king before. Yet there was this promise from God that Messiah, the anointed one, would come and sit on David's throne, not for a generation, not for two generations, not for 14 generations, but forever. And so God's people were waiting for a king a Messiah, the anointed one who would come and would ascend the throne and would never descend from the throne. Another messianic promise would be echoed by the prophet Isaiah. This is a familiar prophecy concerning the Davidic covenant. Isaiah 9, verses six through seven, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Beloved, this promise of an anointed king who would reign on David's throne would echo throughout human history for over 700 years. 700 years of expectation, 700 years of king coming and going, going, coming and going, dying and rising. Until this announcement now in Matthew chapter one, where David announces to the world that the long-awaited Messiah king who would reign on David's throne forever has come and his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the fulfillment of the covenant promise to the king. Finally, this Jesus is not only the Christ, he's not only the anointed one, he's not only the son of David, but he is also the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew now reaches even further back in Israel's history, further back in Jewish history, all the way back to the beginning to Father Abraham. 
And by drawing our attention and his audience's attention to Abraham in this opening sentence, Matthew is signaling to his readers that this anointed Messiah King is also a savior. He doesn't just rule and reign. He saves his people. Listen, back when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, God made them a promise, a covenant of sorts. God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Theologians have called this the first gospel or the proto-evangelion, the first announcement of good news comes in Genesis chapter three. The seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will come and will crush the head of the serpent. That's good news. That it's not always going to be like this. That the offspring of Eve would be humanity's ultimate rescuer. A savior would come through the seed of the woman. And listen, that promise from God in the garden would be reestablished. Would be reestablished when God would make his famous agreement, his famous covenant with Abraham. When God said to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So we learn in God's covenant with Abraham that this seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent will come through Abraham's offspring. Well, you might say, that is really great. But what does that have to do with a 21st century non-Jew like me? A 21st century Gentile. All of this sounds very Jewish. King David, it sounds very Jewish. It's hard to get more Jewish than Father Abraham. What does this have to do with me, a 21st century Gentile and non-Jew? Well, it gets better because later... In Genesis chapter 22, we learn that this offspring, listen, that this offspring, this seed of the woman will not only benefit the nation of Israel, but will be a blessing to every nation. Every nation on earth. So yes, this Messiah, this Savior will come through the Jewish offspring of Abraham, but his saving realm will extend far beyond the nation of Israel. This promised Messiah is coming for the whole world. And Matthew wants you to know it. Son of David. Son of Abraham. He is not just a king. He is not just the king of kings. He is a savior, and not just the savior of Israel, but a savior to the world. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 would make it abundantly clear. Paul would say this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Listen, Paul says it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. 
So what is Matthew doing in this opening sentence and with this genealogy? What is Matthew up to? Beloved, Matthew is pulling every promise, every promise of ultimate rescue from the Old Testament, Messiah, son of David, offspring of Abraham. He is pulling every promise from the Old Covenant and he is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. In fact, Paul would say later that all of the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why Paul says it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Why does this matter? Why is this important? Beloved, the most important thing to keep in mind as you read the scriptures is this, that the message of Christianity is and always has been a message of rescuing grace. The message of Christianity has always been a message of rescuing grace. That is to say, Christianity is a religion that is built upon one main purpose, and that is this. God is on mission through his son to save his people from the consequences of their sin and from every continent on the globe. It is not an ethnocentric religion. It is a global religion. He is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. He is the blessing to Israel, and he is the blessing to the nations. In fact, in the very last chapter of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he called his disciples to himself, and he says something remarkable. After he raises from the dead, he calls them together, and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now stop there for just a moment. When have you ever heard anyone ever talk like that? Even the most egotistical, even the most narcissistic person that you can picture in your head, don't say it out loud, you've never heard them say all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who would say that? One. The son of David says that. The son of Abraham says, come to me. Come to me. Let me tell you something about my authority. All authority has been given to me. And then he says, and he sends him out. Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples of all all nations, not just of Israel, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God. What is the name of God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All authority, all reach has been given to the King, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He is the King above every king, and he is the Savior to the world. The question for us before we begin this journey, I'm going to close with this. The question before all of us this morning is the most important question that you will ever answer in all of your life, and that's not hyperbole. Here's the question. What do you do with him? 
What do you do with him? What do you do with the son of David? The son of Abraham? What do you do with the one who says all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me? What do you do with him? I've already told you Matthew won't let you merely admire him or live the Sermon on the Mount. Will you follow him? As we move through Jesus' teaching, he's going to gather his disciples and he will say to them, will you follow me? Will you follow me with your whole lives? So what do, you, what do you do with Jesus? Will you follow him? Will you believe upon him as he walks on the water and he heals the lame and he transforms tax collectors and he dignifies women and he does all that he does to show his kingdom is utterly different than this one? Will you believe upon him? Or will you just observe him? Will you worship this Christ? One of the most controversial things in all the earth is that this man, Jesus Christ, received worship and he loved it. Angels, when people bow down before angels, angels say, get up, what are you doing? Any earthly king should say to anybody that bows down to worship, get up, what are you doing? You know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't say that. Instead, he says in Matthew's gospel, if they don't worship, these very stones will cry out to me. So what will you do with him? Will you worship him? Will you follow him? Will you give him everything? Will you listen to him? May God grant us deep trust. And this is God granting. May God grant us deep trust in Jesus Christ as we move through this inspired biography with all of its challenges, with all of its beauties, with all of its high Christology and praise, with all of its commands to his people. May God grant us deep trust in Jesus Christ, and not just admire him, but worship him with all of our strength, with all of our minds, with all of our hearts. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, we are eager to walk with Jesus And I pray, Father, that you would move in such a way as to cause authentic worship among your people as we look to the Son, as we look to the King, the Messiah. And in good ways, would you allow that question to mess with us this week? What do I do with Jesus? What do I do with Jesus on Tuesday, on Thursday? What do I do in, with Jesus when times are difficult? What do I do with Jesus when times are great? Father, I am praying desperately 
from my own heart and all of us here that we would be overcome with allegiance to Christ. We'd be overcome with allegiance to the King, the Son of David. And we would receive his free grace, his rescuing grace, the Son of Abraham. We pray this now in Jesus' good name. Amen.